Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Onk Ducks. This week's episode, we're going to be focusing on stem cell transplant. We're going to go over the important details on the different types of stem cell transplant, where these stem cells come from, conditioning regimens, as well as complications that you need to be aware of for your boards. By no means is this a comprehensive review of stem cell transplant because this is such a robust field. I'm only scratching the surface, but we're going to have a quick overview of the highest yield information for your board studying. Definitely. This has been a highly requested episode. And as Sam said, this is a general overview, but hopefully there are some key takeaways that will be tested on the boards. And so to start us off, what is stem cell transplantation? So stem cell transplant is the IV infusion of hematopoietic stem cells designed to engraft the bone marrow and establish hematopoietic and immune function in patients. Stem cells are undifferentiated cells that express CD34, and they're capable of self-renewal and generation of functional pluripotency. Proliferation of stem cell transplant is regulated by stromal interactions as well as cytokines. And then how do we collect stem cells for transplant? So stem cells can be collected by the peripheral bud or by the bone marrow itself. CXCR4 is a receptor that retains stem cells within our bone marrow, and the use of a CXCR4 antagonist, such as plurexophore, allows for the release of stem cells into the peripheral blood for the collection. Exactly. So patients get plurexophore before planned stem cell collection. And then what do we use stem cell transplantation for? So we use stem cell transplantation to allow us to give higher doses of chemotherapy that would otherwise be fatal, meaning we would kind of wipe out that bone marrow with the doses that we need to give to kill the cancer. This is what we're thinking in auto transplants in that sense. And so the stem cell transplant is a rescue from that potentially life-threatening myelosuppression. The other type of stem cell transplant we give is actually used to induce a host-first tumor effect. And this is when we're thinking about allotransplants. So we're actually trying to fight the tumor or fight the cancer cells with a newly engrafted uh, stem cell. And then what are the risks and disadvantages for both autologous and allogeneic stem cell transplant? The risks for auto stem cell transplant include not being able to collect enough cells for the transplant itself, the risk of transplanting back any potential malignant cells during that rescue phase. So if there's one or two floating around peripheral cancer cells, they could be reintroduced into the new system after or at the time of the auto stem cell transplant. Long-term survivors of auto stem cell transplants do have a slightly higher risk of treatment-related MDS or leukemia. The risks for allostem cell transplant include higher risks of treatment-related mortality, graft-first-host disease, which we will talk a lot about, and also time needed to find a donor or a match to actually get this allostem cell transplant. There's a big endeavor called Be the Match, and it's highly encouraged for everyone to participate. And so how do we find donors for allogeneic stem cell transplant? The matching process is determined by comparing tissue types known as human leukocyte antigen or HLA types. And so the HLA region in humans is located on the major histocompatibility complex or the MHC, which is found on chromosome six. HLA consists of two main groups. The first is class one antigens. And so this is HLA A, B, and C, as well as class two antigens, which is HLA DR, DQ, and DP. The 10 antigens considered most important in the matching are two HLA-A antigens, 
two HLA-B antigens, two HLA-C antigens, two HLA-DR antigens, and least important in the matching process is two HLA-DQ antigens. The highest risk for graft-first hosts is when we have a difference in HLA-A, B, C, or DR. Outside of the major compatibility, so those HLAs I just talked about, there are minor histocompatibility differences in intracellular proteins. And so this means that a 9 out of 10 matched related donor, so a sibling, is superior still to a 10 out of 10 matched unrelated donor and can lead to less graft-first host because of these minor histocompatibility differences that we don't catch in our HLA screening. So a good rule of thumb is that a related donor, even if it's 9 out of 10 versus 10 out of 10, is better than an unrelated donor that could be 10 out of 10 match. Yes, knowing the specifics of donor-specific HLA antibodies and donor-recipient HLA mismatch is highly testable. And so what about ABO compatibility in transplantation? So this can occur if, say, the recipient is type O blood, so they have anti-A and anti-B antibodies. And the donor may be either type A or type B blood. You can either remove the red blood cells from the donor infusion or perform plasmapheresis on the recipient to remove the anti-A or anti-B antibodies prior to the stem cell transplant. There are some considerations that we need to be aware of when we're giving ABO mismatch stem cell transplants, and they can be um, immediate or delayed hemolysis, delayed red blood cell recovery, or pure red blood cell aplasia. So things that we need to be aware of when we're giving ABO mismatched. And then what are the different kinds of allogeneic stem cells from donors? So we have three different kinds that we're going to go over. And so the first is bone marrow. So this is actually harvested from the posterior anterior iliac crest. And these cells, if they are harvested, they have to be infused within 24 hours. There is no saving them for later. If there is ABO mismatch, plasmapheresis can, again, those can remove the anti or the anti-B antibodies. The second type of stem cells that we collect is the peripheral blood. This is the most common, and it's definitely more common than marrow stem cells because they engraft more quickly. The collection is from leukophoresis and the use of GCSF, as well as that mobilizing CXCR4 antagonist, which is pleurexifor. One thing to note with peripheral blood is that graft-first-host disease is the highest with this transplantation, but it also has the best graft-first-tumor response. The furry stem cells can be cryopreserved in DMSO and frozen to be used at a later time. Think about that for auto stem cell transplants. One test pearl is that the DMSO, so the preservative, can cause an allergic reaction during the infusion. So this is why we need to be aware of this and why there's always an MD present during the actual transfusion of the stem cells. The third place that we can collect stem cells from is actually from the umbilical cord of newborn babies. These are immunologically immature, which allows for some mismatching of the HLA and reduced incidence of grass-first host disease. But one caveat is, is that umbilical cord stem cells are slow to engraft, and this results in prolonged myelosuppression as well as com complications down the line, such as um, immunocompromised infections. Definitely. And again, these were also very highly tested points in terms of umbilical transplant leading to slow engraftment and make sure that you re-listen to this part of this episode before the exam date. And so Sam, can you tell us about conditioning regimens? 
So we use chemotherapy and radiation prior to transplant to eliminate the immune system as well as those cancer cells. Myeloablative regimens consist of total body irradiation and or chemotherapy with maybe cyclophosphamide or busulfan or atoposide. One test a pearl is to realize a few of the complications of busulfan. It has a higher risk of seizures as well as venoocclusive disease, and I'll talk a little bit about that at the end of this episode. There's also non-myeloablative regimens, and they're preferred in the elderly, and they have less acute graft-first hosts. They can occur, or they can include chemotherapy combinations such as fludarabine with melphalan or busulfan or single fractions of total body irradiation. Conditioning for some specific auto stem cell transplants can include high-dose melphalan for multiple myeloma. In lymphomas, we can use a regimen called BEAM or CBV, and we can utilize cyclophosphamide plus ATG for autoimmune diseases. Think like aplastic anemia. Yes, important to know as well. And so how long does engraftment take? For auto stem cell transplants, engraftment takes about 7 to 14 days. For allo stem cell transplants, it's a little bit longer, so it's 14 to 28 days. And so graft-versus-host host is a very serious complication of stem cell transplantation. Can you start by telling us about acute GVHD or graft-versus-host? I definitely can. So risk factors, again, for graft-versus-host disease includes HLA mismatch, increased age of the host, graft type. So the highest risk of graft-first host is peripheral blood stem cell transplant followed by bone marrow and least likely to get graft-first host is the umbilical cord transplants. Gender differences can lead to an increased risk and alloimmunization from the donor, i.e. if you had a mole paris woman who had prior pregnancies as your donor. Acute graft-first host disease can involve pretty much anything, but when we think about, we think about the skin in the form of rash, we think about the GI tract in the form of diarrhea, we think about liver toxicity and elevated bilirubin. And this is a result of cytokines increasing T and natural killer cells that are actually attacking the host tissue. Prophylaxis for acute graft-first host disease can include calcineurin inhibitors such as tacrolimus or cyclosporin, plus a short course of methotrexate, which can be tapered two to three months after the stem cell transplant and done by month six. Treatment of Acute graft-first-host disease can also include steroids, 2 mgs per kg per day, and also ruxolitinib for steroid refractory acute graft-first-host disease based on a New England Journal of Medicine article published in 2020. Other things that we utilize later down the line can be MMF, anti-TNF-alpha, anti-CD52 antibody, and photophoresis. This is so important. I know I've said this a couple of times in this episode, but the prophylaxis, including tacrolimus or cyclosporine plus short dose methotrexate, highly testable. And then the treatment for steroid refractory being ruxolitinib as one of the options, highly, highly testable. And so Sam, what about chronic GVHD? So chronic GVHD is something that unfortunately can affect these patients lifelong after their transplant. Symptoms can include skin hardening, sclerotic features, esophageal structures and webs, bronchiolitis obliterans, alopecia, nail loss, joint stiffness, dry eyes, dry mouth, muscle weakness, hematuria, and thrombocytopenia. Morbidity can come from opportunistic infections, and the treatment of chronic graft-first-host disease includes increasing the immunosuppression as best we can while weighing the risks, steroid use, photophoresis, rituximab, and abrutinib. 
And then what about infection complications following stem cell transplant? In the neutropenic pre-engraftment phase, we need to think about bacterial infections. They're the highest risk, and we need to use prophylactic antibiotics and treating the bacterial infections quickly. We need to think about PJP risk around the two-month mark after stem cell transplant, which requires prophylactic Bactrim or pentamidine. We need to think about fungal infections, especially candida, as well as invasive aspergillosis. And then we need to think about viral infections. We need to think about common things like flu and RSV, which can cause pneumonias. We also need to think about um, herpes simplex virus 1, 2, and 6, which usually is a reactivation from a latent virus, not a new primary infection. And this can occur in the two to three weeks after transplant. We need to be cognizant of EBV. And the one that we usually talk about the most is CMV. CMV reactivation can occur around 100 days after transplant. It can cause pneumonitis, encephalitis, retinitis, colitis, hepatitis, and bone marrow suppression. If the patient is CMV positive prior to stem cell transplant, there's a high likelihood of this reactivation. So we need to be screening for CMV PCR in the first three months, and we can use prophylactic latromavir. If the CMV viremia is diagnosed, we need to treat immediately with gancyclovir. We try to reduce CMV risk by matching CMV status with the donor as well, but HLA matching trumps the CMV status. Yeah, we previously covered transfusion support in an episode, and it's important to remember transfusions in stem cell transplant patients need to be irradiated to reduce donor lymphocyte-induced graft-versus-host disease and filtered to reduce HLA alloimmunization to donor antigens and minimize CMV transmission. And the prophylaxis and treatment of CMV is also highly, highly testable. And so are there other complications we need to be aware of? There are. So this is going to be a little bit more of a rapid fire of possibly testable complications. And the first one we'll hit on is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. This can occur in the first few weeks after transplant, and it can look like hypoxia as well as BALs with increasingly bloody returns or hemosiderin-rich macrophages. The treatment of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage is steroids. You can also do FFP to correct coagulopathy and platelets with a goal of greater than 50,000. The next one we need to be aware of is veno-occlusive disease, and this is injury to the hepatic venous endothelium leading to occlusion and necrosis. You'll see right upper quadrant pain, rapid weight gain from fluid changes, and elevated bilirubin as well as elevated creatinine. The highest risk is with busulfan use. You guys need to be aware of that. This is a major cause of death in stem cell transplant patients, and the treatment is supportive. And for severe disease, don't forget about defibrotide. Another thing we need to be aware of is transplant bronchiolitis obliterans. This presents months after the stem cell transplant with coughing, wheezing, and crackles, and the image will show bronchiolar dilatation, and the treatment is supportive. Next one we'll talk about is post-transplant microangiopathy. This is a TTP-like syndrome, but it is not driven by that ADAMS-13. It is driven by podocyte damage from cyclosporin or tacrolimus use. And so the treatment is to discontinue the offending agents as we're able to and to support. The last thing we'll hit on is hemorrhagic cystitis, and this is from the BK virus. Treatment for this is bladder irrigation and platelet transfuses, as well as consideration of decreasing immunosuppression as we're able to. Again, these complications are extremely highly tested. I know I've said this 
multiple times, but this entire episode really just comes up again and again on our board exams. And if you are not someone that is going to be practicing transplant medicine, you know, it's really important to listen to this. And so Sam, thank you for tackling this. And what are our key takeaways? So again, guys, this is just scratching the surface of stem cell transplant, but you wanted this episode, so I condensed as much as we could. Our key takeaways are stem cells are CD34 positive. We need to be aware of the CXCR4 antagonist, Plexa4, which allows the release of those stem cells into the peripheral blood for collection. Auto stem cell transplant is using the patient's own harvested stem cells to rescue them from toxic chemotherapy regimens. Allo stem cell transplant is using a donor stem cells to induce graft first tumor effect. We need to be aware of HLA matching for allo stem cell transplants, and we focus on the HLA A2 antigens, B, there's two of those, C, there's two of those, two of DR, and two of DQ. Stem cells can be collected from the bone marrow, the peripheral blood, as well as the umbilical cords, and they have different um, risk factors associated than we touched on in this episode. Graft-first host disease is the highest with peripheral blood, but also has the best graft-first tumor, so we utilize peripheral blood, I think, the most. There are myeloablative as well as non-myeloablative conditioning regimens. Acute graft-first hosts, we use prophylaxis to try to prevent this with tacrolimus or cyclosporin plus that short course of methotrexate. And treatment of acute graft-first hosts, if it happens, is high-dose steroids or ruxolitinib if they're steroid refractory. Chronic graft-first host disease, we treat with immunosuppression, steroids, photophoresis, rituximab, and abrutinib. And you guys need to know about risk of infections and the timing related to the stem cell transplant, as well as complications following stem cell transplant. Absolutely. And so, as always, thanks for listening. Good luck with studying. Please reach out to us with corrections or comments on two Onk Docs. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please feel free to leave us a review. Thanks so much.